Beethoven's second symphony, an unjustly neglected masterpiece. The funny thing about Beethoven's symphonies is that they tend to fall into pairs, but they're quite closely composed in terms of time in pairs. So one and two tend to go together, three and four, five and six, seven, eight, nine, and in fact he was thinking about a tenth at the point at which he died. And the funny thing is that it's the odd-numbered symphonies that have claimed all the airtime. The even-numbered symphonies have been left very much more out in the cold, and certainly in the case of the second symphony, that is a crying shame, and I hope we can show why in the course of the next half an hour or so, and indeed perhaps in our own small way help to put the second symphony back on the map. What's most interesting about the piece is that it emerges early in Beethoven's career, this is 1802, shortly after the first symphony. The first symphony very much, the music that perhaps his predecessors, Haydn and Mozart, might have written. Of course, it's still Beethoven. It's quintessentially Beethoven. It conforms to the same form, the same architecture that Haydn and Mozart had sort of bequeathed to him. In the second symphony, it's still largely true, except that he's starting to explore characteristically and typically Beethovenian qualities, which will then take the form forward into the 19th century, Romanticism and all that lay beyond. Now, the essence of the classical style, the Haydn, Mozart and early Beethoven style, is that of sonata form. And it's very much within that context that the first movement of Beethoven's Second Symphony is couched. That being said, what we've just played to you was the, the Allegro, the beginning of the Allegro, which is, forms part, the majority of the first movement. It's preceded, however, by an adagio, which is an old tradition stretching back certainly to Haydn and before him. And what I want to show now by looking back in the adagio first is just how economical Beethoven's process is, that there are fine little tiny details, little nuggets of information contained, clues, if you like, within the adagio, which will then speak not just for the rest of the first movement, but for the whole piece. He can work on a grand scale, but with the most intimate forms. There's an interesting mixture, if you like, of two types of music in that. There's something quite plangent, particularly about the music that the oboes and bassoons have, in between the big punchy chords, which is the other style of music, confident and assertive. D major, the home key for this work as a whole. Now, if we carry on exactly from there to how he changes an element of the rhythm, the accompaniment the second violins and violas have got to create drama. They've been going yop, bop, 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 and then he just changes it very subtly to triplet, so it's ya, da, 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 da. And it has a palpable effect upon the line that's riding above it. <laughs> Here it is. 
extraordinary small gradation, a fine tuning, which makes a huge world of difference. Also, you'll have noticed that he's developing now through the use of dynamic, in other words, volume control, attacks. You get these amazing bumps out of the horns, out of the oboes, back to the horns, on strange, weak beats in the bar, all of which just make you sit up and listen. You may have noticed with a lot of this primary material we're hearing in this adagio, all of which, if you like, is the genetic code for the movement, if not the symphony as a whole, tends to be based on arpeggios. Pavlo, can you just play us one? A broken chord, that's all an arpeggio is. Let's play now this extraordinary fortissimo, very loud, dotted, jagged rhythm that you get in this arpeggio in D minor now coming down. Now, I want to look at the theme, which is unusual at the beginning of the Allegro con brio, because it comes in the middle of the string section, not at the top. You'd normally expect to hear a theme. If it's coming in the strings at all, it would usually first come in the first violins, at the top of the texture, but not here. It comes in the middle. Let's first of all play it deprived of its detail, as it were. So just again, this arpeggio figure. Now, there's another little feature which goes in between those notes of the arpeggio. I'll add that in. Now, we'll get into it just to show how organically this grows out of the adagio with the full orchestra from bar 33, please. See what I mean? It's the one just becomes the other, and suddenly you realise that the whole colour of the room has changed without you noticing. Another little feature, just where we stop there, you get these amazing bulges in Beethoven. He's always playing with volume, and indeed, we often joke when we're rehearsing this piece that there's so many sports sandies, so many bullet hammer attacks required, which is incredibly hard work. And it's almost like that scene in Spinal Tap where, you know, the volume knob doesn't just stop at 10, it goes up to 11. Beethoven definitely has an 11 in his box of tricks. Let's play that again now, and we'll carry on a little bit longer. Straight in on the Allegro now, please. There, he immediately subverts your expectation. You get da, 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 so there's an accent occurring on a very unusual, weak beat in the bar. Again, to make you listen and to give a real sense of shock and of drama. It's abrasive musical writing and it, it contributes to this sort of intensely muscular nature of this music. Now, I'll play the second subject of the Allegro, which again is based on an arpeggio figure.
Let me take you forward now to the end of the exposition, this, this first section of the Sonata Form rule book and of this first movement of Beethoven's Second Symphony. He ends the exposition in the dominant key. Now, um, what that means is the tonic key is the home key, in this case D major, D, so the dominant will be five notes higher, A, in other words. That's the dominant key. That's what Sonata Form says you should end your exposition with, and indeed he does. What's interesting here is, as I said, he got to the end of the exposition in A major, the dominant key, just as the rule book said he should, but he immediately then breaks the rule because he finds his way to D minor for a, re a reassertion of that first theme, the first subject of the movement, which is very unusual. I know if you're a pianist, you think, well, D major, D minor, they're right in the same place on the piano, but the fact is they are worlds apart. Let's have a little look at one detail now of the theme as it occurs here and show that how he uses that for a whole passage of variation. One tiny little nugget, a grain of information. Just the semi-quavers. Now, if I show you, just very, very soon after this in the development, he really works this tiny little da 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 motif over and over a lot. If we play from one, five, eight. Then we get a version of the second subject. Again, he's developed it, he's adding fresh things to it. He's moving the accents around, the sforzandia I've been talking about, the hard hits, the different places in the bar than how they've been before. Recapitulation. Right, can I just play you now the end of the recapitulation, which traditionally would be where the movement stopped. <laughs> So the end could be round about here, but no. Beethoven has basically a new device, the device of the coda, that in addition to the three major sections of a sonata form movement, that there might be an end piece. It's not just a matter of kind of drums and trumpets thrashing away for a while so you really feel you're at the end, but it's actually like a second development section. He carries on working over the ideas when, in all honesty, one would only have expected him to have stopped.
idea how he's playing with it, how he's playing still further with ideas, stretching them, adding in new elements, particularly in terms of dynamic and unusual accent. Let's move on to the second movement. Now, he makes very much from very little, once again. I'll show you what I mean. Can we just play, please, the first bar as far as the first beat of the second bar? Now, I'm going to take you a little bit further on in the movement and show you exactly, precisely, how he first develops that idea. Now, I'm going to go back to the third bar of the initial theme again. Please play the third bar plus the first beat of the next. Now, I'm going to take you further forward again to show you how that, in turn, gets taken forward. Please, the upbeat to 27. So you get a sense of the, the essential shape of the motif, and so often that's what Beethoven does. He doesn't, in a rather kind of only retentive way, say, well, that's my theme, and so that's exactly how it's going to be, or a variant of exactly that all the time. He'll often just take the arch of it, the shape of it, the, the overall kind of etching, the imprint of it, and make something new and something new and something new from that, or a tiny detail of it. we get to where strictly the second subject lies, the second theme, that contrasting material. But of course, being Beethoven, it isn't new at all. It's just the essence of what we've already had. And you get a lot of juxtapositions between major and minor, if you like, to use a crass analogy, between bright sunshine and a much deeper kind of introspection. It's always worth remembering Beethoven's ongoing and oncoming deafness at this time and the utter misery we know it caused him. These contrasts I'm talking about can sometimes be willfully harsh. You hear that? In the second violin, so they've got a G sharp coming out of an E minor texture which has G naturals in it, and suddenly he just pokes a G sharp, which is a, is a major, in the most uncomfortable way. It's savage, really. Now, we're just getting to the end of the development section of this second movement, and we're in G major, 
which is worlds apart from A major, which is actually the home key of this movement. So how are we going to get back there? And the device he uses is an outlandish one. He just bangs the horns in suddenly out of nowhere. They've been silent for 30 bars with a big A octave, signalling the return to the tonic, to the home key. Capitulation, that first theme, once again, starts. Moving on to the third movement of the symphony. Now, in a classical symphony from the classical era, this would be a minuet and trio, basically a gentle, graceful dance in three-time. Beethoven makes history by renaming it a scherzo. Now, scherzo means joke or something playful. And in fact, in the hands of Beethoven, it becomes something fiery and exultant, million miles away from the kind of graceful minuet you might have heard in an early classical symphony. So, going on to the next section of the scherzo, you hear once again Beethoven's willful use of the accent on a strange beat where you don't expect... the opening material again. Now, in a standard minuet, you also get a trio. Well, Beethoven doesn't change that part of the architecture. So you get the scherzo and then you get this trio, which is a kind of contrasting idea. In fact, again, what Beethoven does is not to write something completely new, but to write something which has the essence of the scherzo theme, but it's like he's freeze-framed it. Now, that gorgeous little theme that the oboe and bassoon and horn have is then answered by something very different from the strings. Stringent, strident F-sharps. Quelle surprise, is Beethoven, of course he's going to do that. Again, it sort of prefigures what he writes in the storm movement in the Sixth Symphony. Softer, 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 and suddenly... <laughs> terrifying. On to the finale. Just listen to how this movement starts. <laughs> what a fantastically audacious way to begin a movement. And it has several things that Beethoven likes in it. It's got the offbeat, Let's just play that, the upbeat and the downbeat. It's got sforzando, which is the big accent. And then it's got hard wedges. Wedge is a, a sign that's written over a note, which is a bit like staccato, you know, which is very light, very 
a short attack to the sound. A wedge gives it a harder attack and sometimes slightly more length. So the last two notes have that. Let's put it all together and play on. Now, here we get a bridge passage which takes us through to our second theme, which is uh, a primary motif, in a way. Again, relating back to everything that we've heard before. Essentially, an arpeggio picked out. Second subject here, which is a neat reversal of the second subject, if you can remember back to that, in the first movement. That was an upward arpeggio. This is one that comes down. OK, I'm going to jump forward now over the development, over the recapitulation, and into that final section, the coda. So, let's play where the coda starts and explore what he's developing. He's intensively developing or working over the opening upbeat of the movement. OK. so on and so on. It also intensively develops that bridge section to the second subject which I showed you earlier. Suddenly, time stands still. Listen to this chord. There's something incredibly sad about it. Moving on. And he's playing with that upbeat again. I'd just like to play the very end of the coda for you now to show how when we do get the full drums and alarms of the closing bars. They are hard-won, well-won and utterly justified. So you can see the role of the coda is now completely transformed. There is no looking back. This is true, majestic splendour, not just anything like what it had been, a formal ending. Beethoven has set a new template 
with the coda and indeed with the way that he varies, grows, develops the smallest of possibilities throughout this work. He set a new template for himself and for all composers since. 